and welcome to PCTY Talks. I'm your host, Sherry Simpson. During our time together, we'll stay close to the news and info you need to succeed as an HR pro. And together, we'll explore topics around HR thought leadership, compliance, and real life HR situations we face every day. So joining me today on the podcast is William Tincup. He is the president and editor at large of Recruiting Daily, a writer, speaker, advisor, consultant, investor, storyteller, teacher, and as I just found out, artist. William, the list is endless. Thank you so much for jumping on with me. Well, and I left a bunch of stuff off. Let's, let's be honest. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. Uh, you know, those, those things that when I was writing up that, that bio... I just started really writing off like, you know, how do I interact with people and how do I interact with, prof- you know, the practitioners and how do I interact with technologists? And it just, it's, there was more words in there and I had to like scratch them off. And there's actually a couple of them that are, they're too similar anyhow, but it's, uh, it's kind of like your different personalities that you shift into when you, when someone needs something from you, like someone needs you know, a creative solution, then you access that part of your brain. Go, okay, you need something creative. Let me, let me think about that for a second. Let me be creative. Okay. You need something practical. Okay. Well, you know, then you go there and you be, you, you give them practical. Uh, so I'm, 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 I consider myself blessed in that I, I can go to those different areas of my brain when needed. And uh, I'm also blessed that I get to interact with a lot of different people that need different things. So uh uh, it's it's nice to be much multidimensional, but but also there's a lot of folks out there that are that are multidimensional, that uh, that aren't thrown into multidimensional situations for whatever reason. So like we've got we've got some folks out there that are untapped that that could be multi could could be used in different ways and uh, leveraged in different ways. So but thank you, wonderful introduction. And uh, yes, we're surrounded by artwork, and now I'm getting really interesting art questions from my kids about like. What is the meaning and how did you design this? And what do you think about this? And so uh, I have to tap, I have to tap my uh, art history degree to kind of like bring them into, uh, into some of the theory behind the paint. Well, you totally teed me up for my next question. You know, your background is fascinating. You have a BA in art history, an MA in American Indian studies and an MBA and this really long career in HR how did you end up in HR as the thing that you're doing and really being the thought leader in right now? True, true story. I just got my degrees framed uh, last week. They're sitting off camera. They're sitting right there from from uh, from uh, Hobby Lobby or some Michael's MJ Design, somebody somebody like that. But I literally, 23 years later, I just got my degrees framed, and uh, and. But I did it for, you know, I, I didn't have them framed just because, uh, you know, just, I didn't really feel, I, I earned the degrees, didn't really feel like I needed to look at them. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and I didn't really, I thought it was a little bit pretentious to get other people to look at them. Uh, but I got them framed because my kids asked me about them. They're like, did, you went to college, right? I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I did. So I thought it'd be good for, for my sons to see them. Um, when I first started my academic career, I had done so after about a six-year retail career at Walmart. Uh, and, and some of that, I worked with Sam Walton and, uh, and worked in Bentonville and did a bunch of really, really interesting stories, which is a whole other podcast of things that I learned at Walmart, especially from, from Sam. Um, 
when I went to or decided to go to college, um, the college advisor at Alabama basically said one in four graduates work in their degree. I said one in four, 25%. Okay. So, so she said, listen, you know, the chances are by the time you graduate, that's going to be less. So what do you like? Like, don't think about what you're going to work in. Like a lot of kids come in, they're like, ah, oh, my dad wants me to be a business student. And they get into business and they hate it. They don't, they don't, they not only don't want a career in it, they just don't like the subject matter. And so she said, you know, what do you like? I said, well, I'm an artist. She goes, do art, do art history, do something with art, go over there and explore, do photography. And it was the best advice ever. Uh, because what she was really doing was saying, go unlock the things that you already like and are already passionate about so that it's not a stretch and if that's chemistry great if it's you know marketing fantastic like whatever it is it is but go do that and then get used to the system of education and then figure out what you're going to do with it afterwards and uh you know with the ma in american indian studies i thought i wanted to be a curator of, of american indian art and then i interned at smithsonian a few times and uh, saw how the sausage is made and decided I did not like uh, the politics, actually. Ironically, it's the, the politics of being a curator that art is interesting. The art on the walls, that's interesting. Collecting art, displaying art, giving people a wonderful art experience, all of that stuff, yes, I still find fascinating. Uh, but behind the scenes, none of that stuff is interesting to me. Never was. So at that point, I did a pivot and uh, wanted to be an entrepreneur and knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And uh, so then that's that's why the MBA, the, the MBA out of all three degrees, the MBA was actually the first private school experience I've ever, I've ever had, which was interesting. So it was like three professors for every student, like that crazy, you know, kind of, kind of things like that, which I'd never read public school education, you know, I'd never two big public institutions for college, uh, never experienced that. So that was, that was interesting. Um, but also, um, it, an MBA is mostly a degree in common sense. And uh, after working for Sam, and after working at Walmart, and being around customers, and all this stuff, I found it relatively easy, uh, compared to learning 15,000 works of art. Okay, you know, just take some time off and go and memorize, you know, 20 works of art from the you know, history of the world. Uh, not easy, turns out. Okay, so I think, you know, the, from there, when I got out, I, <clears throat> I worked for an entrepreneur in Dallas, probably one of the brightest, most creative people I've ever worked with. And I, I was a small, uh, small shareholder and we raised money, blew through it. It was the dot-com era and blew through it and then decided I've learned everything that I don't want to do. And I know that I want to have more control uh, if there is such a thing. So I started my own firm and haven't, haven't looked back. Um, when, when I sold my ad agency to my business partner, we were uh, focused and they are still, it's called star conspiracy. It was called star 10 cup at the time. Um, focused on marketing, HR, software, and, and services into recruiters and HR. So, and I, for the firm, did all the HR stuff. So I did payroll, 
I did the internship program. I did, you know, name it, name it, name our HR topic. And I did it for the firm as a partner. And uh, I just fell in love with HR. I mean, it's the easiest way to, to say it is HR knows all the dark things about a firm. They know the pay equity issues. They know the sexual harassment claims, the investigations. They know everything, like all the dark crevices of a firm or a company. They know all of it. And yet, yet by and large, they're still very hopeful. And I find that fascinating because I'm not that way. And so I, I wanted to be surrounded by uh, people that aren't like me because I can, I can be pessimistic or cynical uh, or, or dark and so I wanted to be surrounded by people that w weren't like me. And so I sold my the, mar the equity in the marketing firm and then got certified uh, through SHRM and HR HRCI and then just started doing HR. And just, just because as a marketer, it, I could see things differently than a traditional kind of an HR uh, practitioner that came up through the ranks, got a degree in HR, HR manager, HR coordinator, yeah. you know, all the way all through the specialist and whatever, uh, you know, I could see things differently uh, through a marketing lens. And so then I got out and started speaking on, uh, on circuit and uh, doing a lot of webinars and just a lot of, a lot of, I guess, the thought leadership that, that I think about today is at least as I, as I did it in, at the beginning of that uh, part of my career was how would we do it if we weren't doing it this way? So take onboarding as an example. Okay, onboarding, let's just act like it's broken. How do we fix it? And, uh, and just reimagine it. And for a lot of HR practitioners and recruiters, it's hard to, because you're fighting so many fires, it's hard to reimagine stuff. So you need someone to come along and go, hey, why are we doing it that way? And then give some examples of maybe potential ways to do it differently. And I still do it. I still do that. So I still kind of poke the bear that way uh, from time to time. Recruiting has been um, such a passion for you. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm curious your perspective on how you see the role of a recruiter changing as candidates want, frankly, more of an experience out of employers now. Yeah, news at 11. Um, <laughs> they, they should have always wanted more. Uh, like the, this is, this is actually kind of the, uh, this is kind of coming home to roost, right? That, you know, this, this is when we think of candidates and we've historically thought of candidates as a kind of a faucet that doesn't, that, that doesn't have, it's an endless supply of water. You just turn it on and there's candidates. Well, when you think like that, you commoditize in your brain, you commoditize candidates like, oh, well, 10,000 people apply to this job. We don't really need to create an experience. We don't really need to create uh, feedback. We don't really need to do these things. And so you can see where we kind of got twisted just from the get-go is we thought of candidates as commodities. And the fact that, uh, that they're not commodities now, and nor will they be in the future, it's making us actually think about their experience. Well, you know, it, we should have been thinking about their experience all along. Like this, this is the, there's no new news here. The new news is that we've woken up to the, to the reality of, of surplus and scarcity. And, uh, and, and also I'd say with millennials and with Gen Z in particular, they're just not willing to, to suffer through 
a poor experience anywhere at a restaurant, buying a car, uh, a job interview, you know, like they're just not like, I'm of the age, if someone sent me a 4,000 word job description, I'd read it. I'd read it, redline it, look at it, you know, consume it, think about it, all that stuff. If you send a 4,000 word job description to a candidate today, they'll read the first paragraph and that's it. If you don't capture their attention, they might read the second paragraph, but by the third or fourth, they're done. Like, like they're just, they're just done. And, and people see that as uh, ADHD or AD, ADD, or, you know, they don't, they, they're, their attention span, you, you hear a lot of popular plus, uh, their attention span just driving everything into the ground. It's like, no, they just make decisions faster than we did. So like if, if they're not compelled by the third, fourth paragraph, they're not going to be compelled. And they just X out of it because they grew up with life with an X in the right-hand corner. So that your job description's got a right X in the right-hand corner of it. And so they look at it and read it and go, mm, yeah, no, click. Because that's how they've interacted with everything in their life. And so I think, you know, the, the, if, if you're still thinking about candidate experience as a nice to have, you're, you're already behind. I mean, you're already, you know, years behind, uh, not just your competitors, but just anybody that you want to recruit because they're just, they have options. And, uh, I think the, we're, we have to adjust to the kind of the new rules of talent, you know, based on not just the historical problems that we've had, but, but also that they, they actually control and have all the power. We don't have the power. We thought we did, you know, we, we'd come down from the mountaintop with these tablets and say, uh, would you like a job here? <laughs> you know, we'll bestow this job upon you. And uh, that was silly to, to begin with. And it's, it's absurd now. We're, we should be, we, we should think of them joining our firm as we're the lucky ones that they're joining our team, not they're lucky that they're joining our team. And you see this in LinkedIn sometimes when someone wants to connect, to, connect with me, I can always kind of tell, kind of a, it's, a, it's an ego litmus test, if you will. If their message says, I'd love for you to be a part of my network, <laughs> I automatically don't want to connect with them. Yeah. Because they've sent me a message. I think of you being a part of my network. And that's kind of a very old uh, mentality. It's together, we would have a wonderful network. I'd love to be a part of yours. I'd love to be, be for you to be a part of mine. I'd, collaboratively, I'd love for us to have our networks together is, is really the way that we should think about talent, not just on LinkedIn, uh, but the way that we should think about talent. And, and it's hard for us to switch our brains to they have all the power. I think about that whenever I see um, a job posting where you have like a quick apply link and then you have to go in and manually enter all your information. Uh, those who are applying for jobs now, they do not want to do that work. Bye. That job is not for me because you're communicating something about your company just in that very tiny experience of applying. Um, so, yeah, I totally agree. You know, you wrote an article back in 2020 titled – are recruiters responsible for pay equity gap? Um, and I, for our listeners, I highly encourage you to read it. Um, 
that being said, you've seen recruiters, have you seen recruiters make advancement in helping to rectify that pay equity gap? Um, and furthermore, what, what do you see as new challenges in this area? Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, I got in some hot water. First of all, Indeed commissioned me to write that, write an article. Then I wrote that article. Uh, and Indeed is, at the time, was, is based on location. So here I am not just challenging pay equity and, and uh, the responsibility, but I'm also challenging their business model. <laughs> so uh, it, was, it was rather interesting to go through that process because I was basically saying pay equity, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a way to hide inequities in, in location-based pay, meaning you and I do the exact same job. I work in New York, you work in Topeka, and we would literally do the exact same job the company would pay me 40% more because I live in New York. And what we do the same job, I choose to live in New York. You know, one way or another, I, I choose to live in New York, yet, yet somehow that, that inequity still exists because we've, 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 we've hidden it behind uh, location-based pay. It's like cost of living. It's like, well, you choose to live where you live. You can always move. Like, right. like there's there's land elsewhere that you can go to. Uh, you don't have to live where you live. It's a choice. And so I've always believed that we've hidden uh, male, female, if we just want to break it down by gender, that we've hidden those inequities in location-based pay and cost of living. Uh, but to your question, uh, pay, pay equity if we think of the flip side of, of pay and equity, how we got to pay and equity is, is pay equity is we have to think of it like diversity in that it's everyone's responsibility. It's not just the recruiters, but we'll deal with them because their hands are bloody uh, because historically recruiters have looked at a budget for a job. And if a candidate's again, you and I go in for the same job, job's a $180,000 software engineering job, uh, I come in top of, you know, that, that, you know, that's that, that range uh, and you come in at lower. Uh, let's say you come in at 140. Historically, recruiters have looked at that as a $40,000 win, a $40,000. Hey, we've got $40,000 back into the budget. The problem is, is that's a $40,000 inequity that we created. Because the job was a $180,000 job, meaning the peers, uh, both outside, externally, and internally, that's what the job pays. So pay ranges, and the way that we think of pay ranges, is also very deceiving. Uh, and, and so recruiters are adjusting to that. They're being forced to adjust to that because uh, you have states like New York and others that are, are saying, you know, you have to put salary just salary in you into your job descriptions indeed and google are both prioritizing jobs that have salary information in, in the job descriptions so you know that's all those things are great but to adequately kind of fix pay equity we as a company we have to admit we have a problem the board c-suite everyone's got to get involved to fix the kind of historical wrongs uh, and again, now we're not just dealing with gender, we're dealing with race, doing all kinds of different things. Fix it, which is not just, it is money, it's, but it's not just money, it's mentality. And then the hard work starts. So once we've done all of that, that's all just kind of rectifying historic issues. 
then we've actually got to fix it going forward. And I believe that's where the real work starts with pay equity is now you can't allow yourself to fall into the trappings that we fell into before. So you got to know what the job is. You've got to work with your compensation team. You got to understand exactly what, what market rate is, what above market rate is, what internal to your firm, what other peers are making, et cetera. And you got to say, this is what the job is. There isn't a range between 170 and 220. It, it is what it is. For eight years of experience, that certification, that degree, this is what it is. And that is extremely difficult for people to get their hands around because of the way that we've just kind of, uh, we have to undo a lot of thinking. Uh, but before we can even undo the thinking, we've got to get rectify the past. So I look at pay equity as, as a, a basic human right that that's, we shouldn't have to, you know, it's like free speech on some level. We shouldn't have to think about it. You know, I mean, uh, you know, if framers of the Constitution, if we go back and kind of edit that, it'd be nice if we could just throw that in there as one of the, <laughs> as one of the, as, 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 as one of the, 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 uh, uh, I was going to say commandments, but it wasn't commandments, but <laughs> articles. Basic, we're looking for articles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, one of the articles, but basically make it to where it, this is actually something that you should never think about. Like you don't think about free speech. I mean, even today, you might think about it a little bit more than you did before, but you don't think about it. You, you can, if you have an opinion, you can voice that opinion. And uh, yeah, there's some guardrails to that, but pay equity should be basic. It should be something that we're fighting for. We're here now. Okay, fantastic. Fix the past and then harder, fix the future and fix all the behaviors that got us into the, uh, the hot water that we're in. I couldn't agree more. And as you were talking, it made me think about um, CarMax. I don't know if you have that in Texas, mm -hmm. but oh, yeah. I mean, it's that same model of like, you know, you don't negotiate. You just go and mm. the price is the price. And um, for a lot of people, that's super refreshing. <laughs> you know, buying a car yeah. can be a several hour ad adventure sometimes. Um, so I, I love that example. By the way, Sherry, that's a great example. That's a, that's a great example. Saturn, when they first came out, I believe it's still true, but I'm not, I, I haven't been to a Saturn dealership in a hundred years, so I don't know, <laughs> but they would just put a price on a car. That's it. Like there weren't, or were there any salespeople, you know, flocking around you or any of that stuff. It's just like, that's the price. There you go. There's a, if you want the car, that's the price. Like, yeah. we don't, you know, there's no discussion. There's no negotiation. We, we should have always been thinking about talent in that way. The job. Yeah. The job is, here's what the job is. And there, like, there's no, no negotiation. It's not that we don't care about you to negotiate. It's, it's that we care so much about making sure that things are equitable, that there is no actual negotiation. You don't have to worry about the negotiation. We're not going to force the negotiation. It, the salary is what it is. Yeah. But that's a wonderful example. CarMax is a wonderful example. Yeah. You talk a lot about the benefits of technology. Mm -hmm. How do you see the future of AI impacting the role of HR? So I think, you know, first of all, I think that when we deploy AI, AI right now, we think of it artificial intelligence. It's, it's the intelligence part isn't that intelligent yet. And that's okay. It's getting there. It'll, and over our lifetimes, it'll definitely get there. But when deployed correctly for HR, um, it gives you your HR, it gives you your time back. 
So you take some low value, high bandwidth task, and then you apply AI to those tasks and it gives you that time back. And HR practitioners, they know this going into a week that they're going to be fighting fires and most of their schedule is booked out. And so if they can use technology to get their time back, they can actually think about strategic things, things that they've always wanted, things that they've always wanted to get around to, but just didn't have the time to. So a look at AI on the front end is really kind of taking care of some of the low value, high bandwidth things. Um, down the road, AI will connect dots that we can't see as humans. So we can't see certain things and AI will be able to pull that out and show us those things exist, which is great. Uh, but uh, I think that, you know, our kind of pathway with AI is that we should have fun with AI. Like we shouldn't think of it as anything else other than just a way for us to do our jobs better. I'm excited about what the future holds. I think it's going to be fascinating, the connection that we're going to have and the simplicity it's going to bring to some pretty complex process that HR has. Yep. You know, you get the exciting opportunity to interview a lot of others on HR related topics. Um, if you, and this is a, a big question. So if you could, sure. if you could simplify it, what are you sure. hearing that HR professionals should be paying attention to right now? Uh, it was a term actually a, CM, a CHRO used with me in early in COVID. It was called uh, radical flexibility. And it really stuck with me in that we have to rethink everything we've ever learned about HR through this lens, this new lens. And some of that was COVID, some of it was remote work, um, some of it's talent and the way that talent wants to interact with us, shortages in talent, all of that stuff. But we've got to rethink everything. Like everything's on the table now. And COVID actually, um, it's an unfortunate you know, you know, situation of course, um, worldwide, uh, unfortunate, you know, catastrophic event if, you, if, if we think of it that way. But it sped up a lot of things in HR that it would have taken 20, 30 years to get to. Like we were already doing remote work to some degree before COVID. However, when you tell everybody on Tuesday, Friday, everyone's going to be right. working remotely. You've got to think differently. And I think that's really thrust HR into this, this, this idea of everything's got to be rethought. We got to rethink comp. We got to rethink performance management. We need to rethink uh, learning and training and development. We got to rethink everything, which is liberating because you're not you're not tethered to how you did it pre-COVID. You can still do it that way if it works. You can still do it that way, but you don't have to do it that way. And I think if we hadn't had COVID, of course we're still in it. But if, if COVID hadn't happened, we'd still be kind of grinding it out. And these things would have just taken time to get to this place, like the gig economy and all of these other things we'd have, we, you know, we would have gotten there, but it would have just taken a longer time. Now, um, in particular, I think the things that are kind of keeping HR up at night, the things that they should be thinking about is what, what is and isn't culture today? So that's one is before culture was by and large location-based. You go to an office, is you know, there's uh, free lunches on Friday, you know, everybody's going to a ball game, there's a softball league, you know, whatever. Culture was defined by a place. Well, now that you don't have those places by and large, 
what is culture? So that's one thing to contend with is how do you uh, think about culture differently today and how do you render it? How do you display it? How do you then get candidates excited about it, et cetera? Two, how do you interact with different forms of talent? So now, now there's, there's this talent that's out there and the talent comes in many forms. It could come in the form of boomers that want to retire but work 10 hours a week. Okay. So how, how can you interact with that talent? Uh, it comes in the form of people that want to work with you remotely forever. Like even if you have a hybrid model and even if you have a, a location model, they, they don't want to work that way. Your choice. How do you want to work with that? So I could go through thousands of examples of it, but a large part of it is how do we interact with these different forms of talent? And, and probably the third thing that's on pretty much every practitioner's mind right now is, is how, do we, how do we tap the untapped talent market around the world? So take take uh, just in our uh, just in the U.S. There's you know 70 million people that have been through uh, the prison experience. The, you know, okay. Out of that 70 million, now we're only 30, 330 million people. So that's a big number. How do we interact with that population? How do we interact with you know second chance or fair chance uh, folks? How do we how do we do that? It's not a question of do we. It's a question of how do we, and uh, you know, because it's untapped. I mean, that's just a big giant talent pool waiting to be tapped, and uh, and and so we've got to re we've got to think differently about the talent that's out there, and we've got to think about those untapped talent markets. And so uh, I think it is a large question, but I'd start with radical flexibility, and then I'd start th about those three questions in particular. I love radical flexibility. You know, we've been. Um, thinking about this ourselves, and I've I've started to use the term that we're like in this reinvention revolution when it comes to mm -hmm. HR. Everything is being reinvented. Everything is up for grabs, just like you talked about. Um, so I, I could not agree more. I'm going to switch topics a little bit. Um, sure. You serve or have served on a lot of company boards or in yep. advisory positions, and I think that fascinates a lot of people in HR. They want to give back that way. What advice do you have for our listeners who want to pursue serving on a board? How do they kind of put their foot out there to, to be involved in something like that? So uh, the basic the basic part is ask. So when you when you someone demos a, a technology that you really 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 love, and whether or not it's good, you can roll it out at your firm or not, you just really fall in love with the technology. Uh, I have three things that I look at: the entrepreneur. The, uh, the technology itself and the market opportunity, like, is this, you know, is this something that you could proliferate and, and go broad, broader than it is right now? Um, but ironically, you start with just asking, hey, have you ever put an advisory board together? If, if so, I'd like to be considered when you do. It's, it's that simple. It, you know, it's, it's, it's putting yourself forward uh, and, and being vulnerable in a way of, of hey, listen, I've got some things that would be helpful. Now, practitioners, huh, practitioners have valuable knowledge about how HR and TA actually happens, both historically and, and currently. So they they know they they know how things work. And most entrepreneurs, most technology entrepreneurs, they have no idea. If you were to give them a test on HR or recruiting, they'd have no idea how to pass it. They don't know how the job is done. 
they know they have a vision of how it should be done, which is fantastic. I mean, that's actually what you need. Hewlett Packard had the same idea. So did Steve Jobs. I mean, you, know, you go down, every entrepreneur looks at something and says, there's got to be a better way. And so the technology entrepreneurs look at things in HR all throughout all the components of HR, and they look at it and go, there's got to be a better way. But they need practitioners to be a great sounding board and to actually kind of, you know, not tell them that that's wrong, but basically say, okay, it's right. Now, how do we actually get practitioners to use it? How do we get practitioners over the change management? How do we get people to adopt it? Uh, and so I think, I think for me, I've given the advice to practitioners, all senior practitioners, to be at least on one technology board uh, to learn how technologies works. I mean, it's actually kind of a, you know, extended learning, if you will. You're learning how technology works, but you're also helping them get a get get a, be grounded in how HR and recruiting actually work. Have have worked historically, but have worked today, and you help them, and so you're helping yourself and equity in those plays you know you're not you're not going to get rich per se um but but it is nice when a company exits and you and you do get a check or something like that because you were a part of something you know you help something kind of it's like being a teacher and your student graduates it's a, it's you, you take pride in that but uh, i think you start with ask I and then go from there advice just just ask just just ask yeah um Okay, to wrap up our conversation, you know, which sure. has been fantastic, and I think we could stay on the podcast for hours chit-chatting about, you know, different things. But what advice do you have for more senior HR professionals related to what skills they should be developing for their future success um, in the light of everything we've talked about with, you know, radical flexibility and, you know, reinvention and, and everything that's kind of happening around us right now? You know, it's, it's interesting because um, years ago, I would have said STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, math, go, 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 go take coding classes, go take uh, stats classes, go learn, um, you know, basically how math works and go do that so that you understand uh, technology and you understand stuff. I then moved over to the softer skills of how do you learn more about empathy? I mean, most HR and uh, most HR practitioners already have a pretty good understanding of empathy, but empathy is changing. So what we thought of as empathy before isn't as much empathy now. It's like those are table stakes. So, so like, what is the future of empathy? And I, I think where I would, if I were a VP of people ops uh, somewhere, I think what I would do to learn is I would form a book club, kind of old fashioned, kind of kind of stodgy, and 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 has nothing to do with books. Like I don't even care if books are involved. The idea is to get seven to ten of your peers together on a Zoom call. I mean, you can do it. You can do it remotely. You don't have to do it. You know, at Starbucks. Um, but to be able to go, okay, we're in a cone of silence, cone of cone of vulnerability. What are you being blindsided by right now? And uh, think of it as a support group or group therapy, but learn how your peers are adjusting to the ground shifting underneath their feet. 
I think that's the thing that we should be focused on next. I mean, if you go back and you want to do the STEM stuff, fantastic. Like that's not, that's not going to work against you. Taking a stats class isn't going to work against you. Understanding what's st standard deviation or three standard deviations away, that's never going to work against you. However, or learning about empathy, going deeper into kind of the, to where we are currently and, and maybe even the future of empathy, none of that stuff's going to hurt you. You can do that. If that, if that resonates with you as, as a listener, fantastic, do it. Um, but if at this point, I would, I would want to know more about what my peers are seeing and then get their advice on what I'm seeing and use my peers, you know, as a, in a healthy way, leverage my peers knowledge of what they're going through. Like my CEO just said, we're going to be fit for forever remote. Like now what? Now that, now that, now that we've made that, that claim, now that we've you know, put that on our career website, now, now what do I do? You know, like, Okay, that's something that nine other people can sit in a room or sit on a call and go, okay, let's let's just you know be objective and let's try and deconstruct the the situation and give you advice and create. I mean, you can create those groups and have multiple groups so that you're always learning through your own experience and getting advice from others that are going through things that are similar, but you're also helping them problem solve things that they're going through. And I think that's, again, kind of extended learning. It's like going back and get a, a PhD or a master's degree, whatever it is. Uh, I would just do that with my peers. I absolutely love that idea. And if you're listening and you decide to do this, tag me. I'd love to hear about it. I'd love to see this kind of come to life. I think it's really valuable to, to lean on your HR network and um, be creative and be vulnerable, like you said, the cone of science. So um, this has been a great conversation, so much knowledge, so much um, that we can walk away from in this conversation. So William, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to chat with me. This podcast is brought to you by Paylocity, a leading HCM provider that frees you from the tasks of today so you can focus more on the promise of tomorrow. If you'd like to submit a topic or appear as a guest on a future episode, email us at pctytalks at paylocity.com.